I wonder, as you look back over the course of your life, can you recall any times when someone who dearly loved you warned you not to do a certain thing, but you did it anyway, and you suffered the consequences? Probably never happened to you, but I can recall a few times in my life when that happened. One illustration stands out to me still to this day when our daughter Caroline was a little bitty girl. Many of you know Caroline, and she's just a, as sweet a person as you could ever meet. But for some reason on that day, she just chose the hill she wanted to die on. And we had this toaster oven in the kitchen that was an old-fashioned sort of unsafe thing. It had the glass door on the front that heated up to about 8,000 degrees when you cooked something. And we had told her, you know, don't touch that. It's very, very hot. And so I just cooked something in there, and she was, the kitchen counter came to about here, and she kept reaching her hand over and looking at me. And I said, honey, it's hot. It's going to hurt you. Don't touch it. And she looked at me, and her fingers did this across the counter. <laughs> I have no idea why she's not like that at all. And I said, well, it's up to you, sweetie. And I walked out of the room, and I waited. And a few seconds later, a blood-curdling scream came out of the kitchen, and I casually walked back into the kitchen and picked her up and held her in my arms and didn't say a word. Nothing needed to be said, and we fixed her fingers, and the lesson was learned. We all have moments in life when we ignore the warnings of others who care about us, others who have been down the path ahead of us who are just trying to save us from hurt and heartache. But here's what really gets me, are the times in my life when I ignore the warnings from God. Drives me crazy. Why do I do that? I love God. I long to live for him. And you know what? When I look at this church, I see the same thing in you. I see people who are not just here playing religious games, going through the motions. When I talk with you during the week, I see in you and I, I hear from you evidence that you, like me, truly long for your life to bring glory to God. And I hear from you as well the agony and the frustration that comes into your life when you find yourself so often turning from God and blatantly doing what you know he said not to do. Why do we do that? Well, this morning, as we continue our study through the Bible, we're going to see that very thing come about on an epic scale in the life of Solomon. So grab your Bibles and turn to 1 Kings chapter 9. Last week, we covered chapters 5 through 8. Today, we're going to look at chapters 9 through 11, and chapter 11 is really where we'll focus today. And these three chapters, up to the end of chapter 11, will, will bring us to a uh, very significant mile marker in the journey of God's people as recorded throughout the, the Old Testament. And everything will be different from, from this point on. So let's read, I think, uh, maybe the first nine verses of this chapter just to set the tone for what's about to happen. 1 Kings chapter 9, verse 1. 
Now it came about when Solomon had finished building the house of the Lord, that's the temple that we looked at last week, and the king's house, and all that Solomon desired to do, that the Lord appeared to Solomon the second time, as he had appeared to him at Gibeon. And the Lord said to him, I have heard your prayer and your supplication that you have made before me, and I have consecrated this house which you have built to put my name there forever. And my eyes and my heart will be there perpetually or always. Verse 4, now if you walk before me as your father David walked in integrity of heart and in uprightness to do according to all that I have commanded you, and if you keep my statutes and my judgments, then, there's another if then, then I will establish the throne of your kingdom over Israel forever, as I promised David your father, saying, you shall not fail to have a man on the throne of Israel. Verse 6, but... If you or your sons at all turn from following me and do not keep my commandments and my statutes, which I have set before you, but go and serve other gods and worship them, then I will cut off Israel from the land which I have given them. And this house or this temple, which I have consecrated for my name, I will cast out of my sight. Israel will be a proverb and a byword among all peoples. And as for this house, which is exalted, everyone who passes by will be astonished or appalled and will hiss and say, why has the Lord done this to this land and to this house? Then they will answer, because they forsook the Lord their God who brought their fathers out of the land of Egypt and have embraced other gods and worshiped them and served them. Therefore, the Lord has brought all this calamity on them. These words were both a promise and a warning to Solomon. In essence, God was saying to Solomon, look, Solomon, you have a choice. Just like when we saw back in in Joshua's day when God came and said to him and the people, choose you this day whom you will serve, whether the gods that your father served in Egypt or the God of Israel. Make a choice. God's coming to Solomon here. And he's in essence saying, Solomon, you have a choice to make. Here's how this lays out. Plan A. Plan A is, if you follow me and walk in my ways, I'll establish your throne forever and I will bless you beyond belief. Plan B is, if you turn away from me and pursue other gods, Israel is going to be cut off and the temple that you've built will become a heap of rubble. Now, how clear is that? Solomon did not walk away from that going, I wonder what he meant when he said the thing about, no, it was clear. And so surely Solomon would make the right choice, wouldn't he? Surely he would. Well, the last half of chapter 9 through chapter 10 shows us a path that Solomon began down that would ultimately lead him to a very bad place. It doesn't seem bad at all at the beginning because the last part of chapter 9 and all of chapter 10 just simply give us a glimpse of all the material possessions and all the wealth that Solomon accumulated during his reign. It talks about the cities that he owned, the vast number of people that he employed, the naval fleet of ships that he built, the tremendous amount of gold that he acquired. And, and we, we won't take time to go through all these details, but as you read chapter 9 and chapter 10, The numbers that it shows us here are are mind-boggling, even in today's terms. 
Just one transaction, we're told, brought Solomon 420 talents of gold, which, when converted into our weights and measurements, is around 32,000 pounds of gold, or 512,000 ounces, which I checked it uh, Friday, gold price, according to today's gold price, is close to a billion dollars. On another occasion, one king gave Solomon 120 talents of gold, 9,000 pounds, around $250 million. He was so rich in money and property that he gave 20 towns to King Hiram. Just gave 20 towns to him. This is insane wealth and power. In chapter 10, we see that people from all over the world began to hear about Solomon's wisdom and his remarkable wealth and how he had sort of built uh, these botanical gardens with all kinds of exotic flowers. He had built in our day a zoo, this wild animal place where he brought all kinds of animals in from all over the world. And people from everywhere came, the Bible tells us, to hear the wisdom of Solomon and to see all that he possessed. In fact, we're told in the early part of chapter 10 that the Queen of Sheba traveled a great distance to come and visit Solomon. If you look on the map, they found Sheba today. It is down below Saudi Arabia in a place today that's called Yemen. Right down there on the southern coast, Sheba, they've, uh, they've excavated what they think is the palace of Sheba. Uh, they found uh, inscriptions with her name. They found a, a tablet that talks about her going to Judea. Uh, and they, unbelieving historians have dated those things and that city to around 1,000 B.C., and you just go, well, isn't that interesting? And once again, archaeology is dragging its feet, but they come along and eventually prove the Bible to be absolutely accurate. Well, Queen of Sheba came, and we're told that she brought 9,000 pounds of gold to give Solomon as a gift. She gave him many precious stones, and she gave him what was the largest shipment of spices ever given. And all these people who came to see Solomon brought him these lavish, extravagant gifts. And so his kingdom just continued to grow and grow and grow. But even for someone as wealthy as the Queen of Sheba was, who had the ability to give that kind of gift to someone, the Bible tells us that when she saw the wealth of Solomon, it says there was no more spirit in her. That's an old-fashioned way. Spirit can be translated into breath, right? We know that from studying the Bible. Spirit, the breath of God. What it's literally saying is that it took her breath away. She was just astounded. She's like, this can't be real. We're told that every year, Solomon brought in an additional 25 tons of gold. And it just goes on and on there, describing the insane wealth that Solomon possessed, to the point where 1 Kings chapter 10, verse 27 says, the king made silver as common in Jerusalem as stones. So people walking along the road, if they saw a chunk of silver, they'd just kick it out of the way, keep going. It was worthless, kind of like our currency is about to become. <laughs> you know, I mean, people, people nowadays, unless they're from my parents' generation who grew up after the Great Depression, people nowadays walk right past a penny. They wouldn't even bother to bend over to pick it up. One of these days, that's going to be true of $10 bills. It's going to be blowing around the streets, worthless. And so Solomon accumulated this incredible wealth, and it all sounds fine. It all sounds like not a big deal. Like, wow, 
Look at the blessings God is giving to Solomon. Isn't all that great? But sadly, we see as we continue into chapter 11 that gold and silver and precious stones and flowers and animals and all that, those are not the only things that Solomon accumulated. Chapter 11, verse 1. But King Solomon loved many foreign women. Oh, boy. As well as the daughter of Pharaoh, women of the Moabites, Ammonites, Edomites, Sidonians, and Hittites. Now, if you've been tracking with us through the Bible so far, alarms should be going off. Why? Well, verse 2. He loved all these women from all these nations. It says, from the nations of whom the Lord had said to the children of Israel, you shall not intermarry with them, nor they with you. Surely they will turn away your hearts after their gods. Solomon clung to these women in love. Verse 3, ready for this? You think you got family problems? He had 700 wives. I beg your pardon? 700 wives who were princesses and 300 concubines. That's just a fancy way of saying women on the side. And his wives turned away his heart. You see, the problem with sin is it always starts out small. I don't know anybody, anybody, who has ever woken up one morning and said, today I'm going to ruin my life. Won't this be fun? It doesn't work that way. Sin always starts out in small, seemingly harmless ways. We read last week that Solomon took the daughter of Pharaoh as his wife. Mentions it here. No big deal, right? It was just one woman. It was just one little violation of what God had said to do. Not a problem. Except that God had said, don't do that. Sin starts out like cancer with just one cell. And if it's ignored, it grows and it spreads until it consumes the whole body and it becomes deadly. Same is true with sin. Folks, I have lost count over the years of the number of people with whom I have pleaded to not go down a certain path. The elders know this as well. Begged people. I remember many years ago, none of you, none of you know this person, so I can share this, but sat right back there, circled up the chairs with a husband and a father who had become addicted to cocaine. And his wife had had enough, and she gave him the last choice. You choose that or you choose me. He sat back there, and the whole time we were talking, he shredded a Kleenex into tiny little pieces and made a pile on the floor. And he said, I choose cocaine. Ruined his life, ruined his wife's life, ruined his son's life. The number of people I've begged, please don't do that. Please, I know it seems like a small thing. Please. Don't do that, but oh no, no, they go and do it. It seems like a small thing until later on sometime I'm called in to come and clean up the carnage. Listen, folks, we need to know something. I've put this on the screen so that maybe you can jot it down and remember this for the rest of your life. Sin isn't bad because it's forbidden. Sin is forbidden because it's bad. We need to understand God isn't being cruel to us when he forbids us from doing certain things. God's not a buzzkill. 
God loves us so much that he says to us, in essence, hey, kids, don't touch that toaster oven. Boy, it's going to hurt. Don't do it. And he does that to spare us from the consequences of sin and disobedience. No one can go to the top of a 50-story building and jump off without facing the consequences that we all know are waiting. Can't do that. God's laws of right and wrong and of justice are in place just as surely as all the physical laws in this world. They can't be broken. We know how painful it is as a parent to watch our children suffer needless consequences because they didn't listen to the warnings that you gave them. And we're all fallen parents, and it still hurts us that much. Imagine how much it hurts God when we, as his children, turn our back on him and disobey him. God warned Solomon not to marry unbelievers. And by the way, this has nothing to do with cultural differences. We see throughout the Bible, Old and New Testament, that non-Jews who believed in Christ were welcomed in. They were brought into the family. I think of Ruth. I think of uh, Rahab and so on. Uh, This is a spiritual boundary is what this is. God is saying, don't marry an unbeliever. Don't marry somebody whose heart is turned to other gods. And I've heard teenagers say, Oh, I met, the, I met the greatest person. Oh, it's so wonderful. Are they saved? Do they know the Lord? Well, no, but you know, I'm going to bring them there. I'm going to bring them to Christ. You, know, you probably won't. Probably won't. Those are just the statistics. You probably won't. God warned Solomon about this. Don't marry unbelievers because they are going to draw your heart away. He never said to Solomon, you'll bring their heart to me. He never said that because it rarely happens. Now, I know of a case here in this church where the, the wife brought an unsaved husband to Christ, one of the few that I, that I know of. But Solomon chose to do it anyway because, you know, he thought, hey, it's, it's not going to harm me. But when we bring influences like that into our life, they always eventually pull us down. See, if I were to take one of these chairs and stand up on it and ask you to come up to me, I would have a much harder time trying to pull you up than you would have pulling me down. It's just how it is. It would be almost effortless for you, in fact, to pull me down off that chair. That's true not only in the physical sense, but it's true in the spiritual sense as well. Why is that? And I'm kind of going back to the question that I, that I started with this morning. Why is it easier for us to fall away from God than it is for us to stay near to God? Well, it's simply because what the Bible tells us, our natural Human, fleshly, sinful inclination is always to drift away from God, not to him. And so if we knowingly bring ungodly influences into our life, we're stacking the odds against us. It's pretty much always going to end up drawing us away from him. And that's exactly what happened to Solomon. Chapter 11, verse 4. When Solomon grew old, his wives turned his heart after other gods. And his heart was not loyal to the Lord his God, as was the heart of his father David. <clears throat> For Solomon went after... Now, boy, this, <laughs> this doesn't hit us very hard, but this, these are 
gut-wrenching words, Solomon went after Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, and after Milcom, the abomination of the Ammonites. Solomon did evil in the sight of the Lord and did not fully follow the Lord as his father David had done. Then Solomon built a high place for Chemosh, the abomination of Moab, on the hill that is east of Jerusalem, and for Molech, the abomination of the people of Ammon. Verse 8, and he did the same for all his foreign wives who burned incense and sacrifices to their gods. Now, folks, this is a hundred miles away from what we read two weeks ago when we got to the life of Solomon and it started out saying Solomon loved the Lord his God. How did he end up here? Solomon knew this was wrong. There was, there was no, z- zero chance of this happening by accident, uh, of him sort of standing up there on one of these high places. I forgot to tell you a couple of weeks ago that the high places is a term in scripture for where people would worship their foreign gods. So Solomon built these places for all his wives. There's no chance that he was up there going, oh, so God, he, he didn't want me to do this? I, I misunderstood. Sorry. I, there was zero chance of that. Because God had clearly told him not to worship any other gods, and he had told his people this for generations. So Solomon had been taught this throughout his whole life. I don't want to get into details of this because I know we have children here and some squeamish people, but you know, I'll give you one example, Molech. Molech was the god to whom people sacrificed their babies. Whenever people worship Molech, uh, you can go and find images of these things. They, they would build this uh, statue of Molech out of iron, and it was big and it was hollow on the inside. And the arms were held out in front like this. And inside this statue of iron, they would build this enormous fire. And it would heat up the whole statue to dangerous temperatures. And then the parents would come, and to to please their false god, they would bring their little baby. And they would place it into the hands, the iron steel hands of Molech. And their baby would be burned to death. So I say there's no way Solomon did this by accident. Look how far he's come from a man who loved God, who said, God, give me your wisdom because I am but as a little child. I don't know how to go out or come in. God, I I need you in my life. Now Solomon is building pagan worship places to please all of his wives. He's no longer pleasing God. God was angry with this. Tells us in verse 9, And the Lord became angry with Solomon, because his heart had turned from the Lord, the God of Israel, who had appeared to him twice, and had commanded him concerning this thing, that he should not go after other gods. But he did not keep what the Lord had commanded. Now don't skip over that little word, twice. God is emphasizing something there. Did your parents ever say to you, I've told you time and time again? That's when you knew you'd cross the line, right? Not just I told you once, 
Philip Dean Pike, I've told you time and time again, God is saying to Solomon, son, I've told you more than once, and you disobeyed me. And we, we read this, and I know that we'd all love to be able to say that we've never done the same thing to God. But none of us can say that, can we? Not with a clear conscience. God comes and he speaks to us through his word, and we hear it again and again and again. And yet we sometimes choose to ignore his word and go our own way. So we can really, if we're honest, we can really identify with Solomon. We can, in a very real sense, walk up to him and put our arm around him and say, man, I'm right there with you. And when we do disobey God's repeated instruction and warning to us, it ultimately brings consequences. This brought consequences into Solomon's life. The first consequence that Solomon had to face, we read about in verse 11. Chapter 11, verse 11. Therefore the Lord said to Solomon, because you have done this and have not kept my covenant and my statutes, which I've commanded you, I will surely tear the kingdom away from you and give it to your servant. Nevertheless, I will not do it in your days or in your lifetime for the sake of your father David. That's an incredible statement. I will tear it out of the hand of your son. Verse 13, however, I will not tear away the whole kingdom. I will give one tribe to your son for the sake of my servant David and for the sake of Jerusalem, which I have chosen. And even in those harsh words of judgment, you know what we see again? The grace and mercy of God that he does not unleash upon us the full extent of his wrath and judgment. Because if he did, none of us would be here today. We'd be dead. God says, Solomon, I have to do this because I cannot break my vow. And when I have stated that when a person disobeys me, judgment will come, judgment has to come or I will be a liar. God takes no pleasure in this. But in the midst of that judgment falling, we see God's mercy. He says, for the sake of my servant David, what that means is, for the sake of the covenant that I made with David, I am not a covenant breaker. And boy, you may have messed up, but I'm not going to mess up. I'm not going to break my word. See, the Bible says even if we are faithless, he remains faithful. Somebody say amen to that, please. Boy, that's good news. Well, here's the second consequence Solomon had to face. God raised up three adversaries against him. Hadad was the first one in verses 14 to 22, and then a guy named Rezon in 23 to 25, and then Jeroboam in 26 to 40. I'll let you pursue those on your own. It was sort of an, an increasing adversary. The Bible tells us that after, after uh, Hadad, and by the way, it's a cool name because when he, was, when he was born, he looked up at his dad and said, hey dad, and that's how, apparently how he got his name. You'll remember it now though, won't you? But it says that Rezon added to the trouble of Hadad. And so you see this, and then when Jer- Jeroboam came, boy, it was compounded even more. Well, 
One day, God sent one of his prophets named Ahijah to see Jeroboam. And as is so often the case, especially in the Old Testament, God would give these visual illustrations of what he was about to do. The prophets were sort of well-known for this. And so um, God speaks to Jeroboam through this prophet, and the prophet gives him this visual illustration. Verse 30, Then Ahijah took hold of the new cloak he was wearing and tore it into 12 pieces. Number 12 sound familiar? And he said to Jeroboam, Take for yourself 10 pieces, for thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Behold, I will tear the kingdom out of the hand of Solomon and will give 10 tribes to you. Now, we, we don't have time to get into this today. We will in coming weeks. But what we've just read is going to define the rest of the Old Testament. It seems like just kind of a passing statement, an odd thing. This guy tears his cloak into 12 pieces and gives 10 to Jeroboam. But just make a mental note of that because that is going to define the rest of the Old Testament and the rest of the history of the people of God. Israel will soon become a divided kingdom. You know, the 12 tribes from the sons of Jacob, the sons of Israel, will now become divided, and they will never be the same. All because Solomon said, hey man, no big deal. One unbelieving wife, two, three, seven hundred, not a big deal. But God says something amazing to Jeroboam, and I, I almost didn't focus on this, but I just think there's something so great here that I hope will bring encouragement to all of us as we fight this battle. Verse 37, God is saying this to Jeroboam, and I will take you, and you shall reign over all that your soul desires, and you shall be king over Israel. And if you listen to all that I command you, walk in my ways, and do what is right in my sight to keep my statutes and my commandments as my servant David did, then I will be with you and build for you an enduring house as I built for David and will give Israel to you. This is incredible. This comes out of the blue. God is saying, Jeroboam, if, if you'll just obey me, and walk in my ways. That's all you have to do. I will give the kingdom to you. I will give Israel to you. So Jeroboam, this guy we've never heard of until now, is promised by God a dynasty, just as King David had. What a staggering, unexpected blessing this is from God. And so you'd think that in every way, Jeroboam would make certain to live right in the sight of God. But he didn't. He didn't. And there's that pattern again. Instead, Jeroboam would later try to make his own way to the throne. And in so doing, he would forfeit God's blessings on him and God's promise to him. Did you hear that? By turning away. He would forfeit God's blessings on him, and he would forfeit God's promise to him. Listen, he could have been the recipient of all that God wanted to give him, but he blew it. He blew it, and he missed out. And it's with that thought in mind that I want to bring all this home to us now and try to make application. As we think back over the past couple of months studying First and Second Samuel, now into First Kings, we, we've seen 
God had promised so much to David. God wanted so much to, to bless him and bless him and bless him. And in fact, after David sinned in, first, in uh, 2 Samuel chapter 11, God said to David in 2 Samuel chapter 12, he said, David, I've given you all this. And God lists the things. I've given you all this. And he said, and David, if that wasn't enough, I would have given you more. But you sinned. You turned away from me. And then we get to Solomon. And God promised so much to Solomon. But Solomon chose to sin. And then God offers blessings to Jeroboam. But he chose to sin too. And yes, I know in this sermon I could, I could spend the rest of this time focusing on their sin and how horrible it was, and it was. But to me, the saddest part of all this is that these people missed out on the complete fullness that God wanted so much to give them. That's the heartbreaking part to me. They missed out. They missed out. And surely with God offering them so much, surely we have to look at this and ask, why would David knowingly disobey God? Why would Solomon knowingly disobey God? Why would Jeroboam knowingly disobey God? But you know what? Maybe the question we should ask is, why do I knowingly disobey God? Isn't that the question that haunts every person who truly wants to live for God? Isn't that the question? Why do I disobey him? For all of us who genuinely desire to live for Christ, isn't our struggle with, with sin the one thing that frustrates us and grieves us more than anything else? Oh, I know some people have plenty of time on their hands to go around pointing out the sins of others. Well, good on them. I don't have that much time. I'm dealing with my own mess, and it's a full-time job. Just ask my wife. It's a full-time job. But I want you to know this morning, as we begin to wind this down, I want you to know that if you're sitting here and you feel the pain of that struggle inside of you right now and the shame and the disappointment in yourself, I want you to know this. Listen, you are not alone in that struggle. You're not alone. But so many Christians have convinced themselves that they're the only one who has to constantly fight this battle, and that is a dangerous lie from Satan. When I was a boy, I remember sitting in church service after church service ad infinitum, and I would look around and I would think, wow, they've really got it together. Boy, look at him. He's, oh, he's really a follower of God, isn't he? Wow. Look at that family. Oh, boy. And then time goes by, and you kind of check them off the list. Another one fell. Another one disobeyed. Another one went astray. And so people sit in churches, and they look around, because you know what the church has done over the centuries. They've said, hey, if you want to come and worship with us, you have to dress in your best clothes. You have to look your best. You have to be all put together. You have to wear the smile every Sunday. And whenever someone says, how are you doing? The answer has to be, fine. I'm doing fine. So you know what happens? Everybody sits in church services thinking that everybody else has it all together. And that's destructive. 
Nobody has it together. Nobody. I want to tell you, we all struggle with sin. All of us. Because of that, we wrestle with thoughts of discouragement and defeat and even failure. There are some people in this church over the years who have come to me, and and I haven't asked them, they've come to me and they said, my job in this church is to pray for you and your family. What an incredible thing. And when they ask how they can pray for me, not only do I say, you know, pray for longevity, in other words, not for me, but that I'll be faithful to the end, but but I say the greatest thing that I battle with on a day-by-day, week-by-week basis is discouragement, feeling unworthy to stand here, and the temptation to quit. Not because I'm lazy, not because I'm a quitter, because I'm not a phony. And to stand here knowing that I'm a sinner, opening God's word and teaching it to you, I never want you to sit there and think that I've got it all together. We're all sinners. We all fight this fight. And to help illustrate that to you, I want to share this with you. Man, this hit me so hard. Last week, I got an email from someone here in our church. And I must have read it 50 times now because it was, just, it was just a gem. And so I contacted him yesterday and I asked his permission to share some of it with you today because I believe it'll be a great encouragement to you as you wage the same war every day. And I will tell you that this person loves the Lord. He's actively involved in serving Christ. He has a heart for God. This is not a slouch. This is not a someone who sits in the grandstands observing. He begins with this verse, Psalm 56, 13. I think I put it on the slides there for you. For the psalmist is saying this to God, for thou hast delivered my soul from death. Wilt thou not deliver my feet from falling that I may walk before God in the light of the living? And in those words, you can hear the cry of the psalmist. He's saying, God, you've gone to the trouble of saving my soul from death, from hell. But won't you also please save me from sinning so that I can live a godly life? Isn't that our cry? And I'll I'll read you just some of these words. Because I, I really think every one of you who love the Lord will so identify with this. And I want to encourage you. I want to encourage you that your brothers and sisters here are fighting this fight with you. He says, I'm currently battling the desire to walk in light. To not let myself be robbed of the joy and freedom that is available if I obey and follow Jesus. Being saved is great, but it's the difference between surviving and thriving. I want to thrive, he said. Why, oh why, is it so hard to turn my back on my stumbling blocks and instead run towards the straight highways that he has made for me? How will I bear the weight of regret and disappointment of looking back on all the time spent stumbling in folly? How is the mere thought of that not the sharpest goad, the pain of which should be enough to motivate me to sprinting in fearful, wild abandon? Where I am now is so much better than where I was, but goodness gracious, I've got a long way to go. 
We know that good is good and that we want good. So why is it so hard to consistently choose good? Wow. Do you relate with that? See, we're all in this boat. Even the Apostle Paul said, I don't have time to read this, but I encourage you to read Romans chapter 7, verses 14 to 25 sometime. You'll need to read it three or four times because it's got some tricky wording in there. But Paul essentially says, the good that I want to do, I don't do. The evil that I don't want to do, that's what I do. He said, when I want to do good, evil is right there with me. He says, in my inner being, that's the saved soul in me that is perfect before God. My inner being delights in the law of God, but my outer being, the sinful flesh, it keeps me captive to sin. There's our battle, folks. There's our battle. It's common to all of us. For David, for Solomon, for Jeroboam, and for us. When we pursue sin instead of pursuing God, What that's revealing is that that area of our life has never become fully satisfied with God alone. It's longing for something other than God. Solomon had everything he could ever want and more, but he still wasn't fulfilled. He still wasn't satisfied. And so he chased after all kinds of other things, hoping that they would fill the void, but they never did. You read the last words Solomon wrote when he was an old man, the book of Ecclesiastes. We're going to get to it soon. And and the words of Ecclesiastes scream of his emptiness. Solomon never found ultimate contentment in God alone, and that's what pulled him away from God. And the same is true for us. Satan tries to convince us that we're still missing out on something, and so we run off in every direction trying to find it. And I want to say this, put this on the screen. The root problem behind all problems is a failure to be fully satisfied with Christ alone. Now, I jotted that down this week, and and that may not be 100% worded the way that it should be, but I believe all of us, if we live long enough, that sounds like an overstatement, but I believe it's absolutely true. I believe it's absolutely true. The root problem behind all problems is a failure to be fully satisfied with Christ alone. Listen, if you've just finished your favorite meal and dessert and you're completely full, the last thing on your mind is to go out and look for another meal. In fact, the thought of that kind of makes you sick. There's no need to look for another meal. You're already completely satisfied. And as we consider the downfall of Solomon, all because he tried to find fulfillment in other things, My encouragement to you this morning is simply this. Listen, I can't give you a formula. I can't give you mechanics on what time you should have your devotions or how many chapters you should read or any of that. None of that matters. You've got to find that for yourself. Here's, Here's my encouragement to you this morning if you long to pursue Christ and live in obedience to him. Here's my advice to you, and it sounds too simple to be true, but it is true. Here it is. Pursue Christ. Forget the mechanics. Forget all the the routines and all this and that. Pursue Christ. Read his word. Get to know him. I mean, really know him. Feast on the bread of life that he offers. Drink the living water that quenches all thirst. 
He's offered each of us complete fullness and complete satisfaction that can only be found in him. And listen, the secret is this. When you're filled and satisfied with Christ, the last thing on your mind will be to go out and look for another meal. In fact, the thought of it will make you sick. There won't be any need to look for another meal. You'll already be satisfied. Solomon's disobedience, man, it, it cost him the fulfillment of all the blessings and goodness that God wanted to give to him. And I don't want that to be true of any one of us. So I pray that the Lord would make each of us hungry and thirsty for him alone. That is the secret to being truly satisfied. Let's pray. You've been listening to a broadcast from LifePoint Church in Greenville, South Carolina. If this ministry has touched your life in some way, we would love to hear from you. Just visit our website at www.lifepointsc.org for more information. Or, if you prefer to reach us by letter, you can write to us at P.O. Box 27036, Greenville, South Carolina, 29616, USA. Until next time, may God bless you as you continue to follow Him. My heart.